Today on the Socialist Program, we're going to talk about three important anniversaries. June 19th or Juneteenth, which Congress and the President came together to declare a federal holiday in the last few weeks. We'll also talk about the July 4th Independence Day celebrations and commemoration. And between those two dates, there's the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party in China. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program, where we go beyond the superficial to understand the social and political struggles dominating the world today. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of many books. His most recent book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. Dr. Horn is also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Horn, welcome to The Socialist Program. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining. Dr. Horn, let's start with the juxtaposition, if you would, of Juneteenth and July 4th. We know that for a long time, the federal government said that it wouldn't do anything about Juneteenth, even though state and local areas had created either ceremonial or, in some cases, legal holidays. A year ago, there was a rebellion sweeping the country, the rebellion against racism following the killing of George Floyd. A year ago, Donald Trump was preparing to have an event on June 19th, and he was forced to cancel it. But then he said this to the Wall Street Journal, I did something good. I made Juneteenth very famous. It's actually an important event an important time, but nobody ever heard of it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So Dr. Horn, there you have Donald Trump learning about Juneteenth, probably for the first time, and then assuming that no one else had heard of it. Here we are a year later, though. Juneteenth is a federal holiday, a surprising sort of sudden decision by Congress. Nobody really saw it coming. There were very substantial pieces of legislation about policing or policing reform, economic and social reforms, also on the table, but not acted on expeditiously as this one was. But first, let's just start with Juneteenth. You're in Texas. Talk about, well, first of all, what you think about the actions by the U.S. government, and also a little bit about the actual history of Juneteenth. Well, needless to say, I support the new federal holiday, Juneteenth, the first new federal holiday since the Martin Luther King holiday in 
holiday enacted in January 1983. However, I'm afraid to say that the backstory that has been presented to the public about Juneteenth oftentimes is as obscurantist and ignorant as Mr. Trump's remarks that you quoted. To put it briefly, you are told that General Granger of the Union Army shows up in Galveston on June 19th, 1865, to tell the enslaved, you're free. What is not imparted to the U.S. public is that this takes place in the context of a so-called surrender by the Confederate States of America in April 1865. However, they plan to decamp to Texas to make a hopefully final stand. That is to say that they would make a stand there that would be extinguished. Jefferson Davis, the leader of the Confederacy, was actually captured en route to Texas. Texas was the Confederate state least damaged during the U.S. Civil War. During the course of the U.S. Civil War, you had slave owners from Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, taking their so-called enslaved property into Texas. The number of black people in Texas expanded exponentially from 1861 to 1865 during the U.S. Civil War. That's one of the many reasons why even today, Texas has the largest black population in the United States of America, 3.9 million, a figure that dwarfs the size of the population in a number of U.S. states. And so the idea was not only to continue the Civil War from Texas, but recall as well another holiday, Cinco de Mayo, which marks a Mexican victory over the French who had seized Mexico opportunistically during the U.S. Civil War. Texas had seceded from Mexico, recall, in 1836 because Mexico had moved to abolish slavery under a president of African descent, speaking of Vicente Guerrero. However, by 1865, the idea was not only for Texas to continue enslavement of Africans in the so-called Lone Star State, but for Texas to rejoin French-backed Mexico and for French-backed Mexico to overturn the 1829 decree that had abolished slavery. This plan may have succeeded, but for the fact that General Granger, and this is oftentimes lost in the obscurantist narrative, ultimately he was accompanied by thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of so-called colored troops. And on one side of the border, the Texas side, they acted as an anvil, as from the other side of the border, speaking of Mexico, you had the forces led by Benito Juarez. Recall that the twin city of El Paso, Texas, Ciudad Juarez is named in his honor. They were pressing from the south against the French-backed forces in Mexico like a hammer, whereas on the other side of the border, the so-called colored troops were an anvil. And that squeeze ultimately led to the defeat of the French forces in Mexico, despite the fact that the French who had colonized Algeria in 1830 had brought across the Atlantic 
thousands of Algerian troops, not to mention that the French exerted influence in Cairo and had brought across the Atlantic as well a significant number of Egyptian Sudanese troops. And so this is also a story of Pan-Africanism in conflict with black forces on either side of the border. Another Juneteenth that should be marked is June 19th, 1867, when the French puppet leader, Maximilian, is captured and executed by the progressive Mexican forces. And that puts pay to this diabolical scheme to continue enslavement of black people in Texas and in Mexico. So in other words, Juneteenth is a stirring story of black-brown unity. It's a stirring story of transnationalism, cross-border cooperation, etc. But somehow that has been lost in the Harry to construct yet another so-called white savior narrative featuring this time General Granger showing up to enlighten the supposedly unenlightened Negroes that they were actually free, even though we know that the so-called Emancipation Proclamation of January 1st, 1863 did not apply, obviously, in jurisdictions where the Lincoln government had no authority, which they certainly did not have in Texas. It's like me issuing a decree banning drug dealing from the leadership in Honduras. My remit does not extend to Tegucigalpa, and so it has no relevance. And likewise, the Emancipation Proclamation had little or no relevance in Texas. So that's the actual story of Juneteenth, and hopefully it will emerge sooner rather than later. Very, very important information. And again, the General Granger showing up and telling uninformed people that they were, quote, finally free, it completely goes against this other factual sort of basis of what happened, which is if you have tens of thousands of black troops during the last two years of the Civil War, 200,000 soldiers and sailors, black soldiers and sailors, 170,000 soldiers, 30,000 sailors in the U.S. Navy were fighting the war, decisively turned the battle fighting the war as a war of national liberation and freedom and emancipation, which for them, of course, it was. Obviously, if there are tens of thousands of black troops already in Texas, the word must have spread to black people in Texas about the end of slavery. The issue really wasn't still as of yet unfought final battle in the Civil War. That's basically what you're saying. Well, not only that, but in addition to a struggle for liberation, we need to see this as one of the fiercest examples of class struggle in the history of North America. That is to say, the enslaved, sadly and tragically enough, are not often depicted as an oppressed class, which obviously they were, not oftentimes depicted as an exemplar of a cruel class relationship featuring the enslaved versus the slaveholder. And indeed, I think it's fair to say that the ferocity of the class struggle exemplified by those black troops from 1862, 1863 to 1865 has been bequeathed to their descendants who have just bequeathed yet another paid holiday to the entire working class not just themselves. 
And this narrative about the enslaved being unaware of the fact that supposedly they were free, while I've already explained, of course, the fact that the Emancipation Proclamation did not necessarily extend in practice to Texas, but also one of the reasons why Texas was the state least damaged by the U.S. Civil War, and Texas was in many ways the keystone of the arch that was keeping the Confederate States of America so-called in play and in motion because you had French-backed Mexico, which was operating in a de facto alliance with the so-called Confederate States of America. You had Mexican ports under French administration, speaking of Matamoros across from Brownsville, Texas, and Tampico, where you had military materiel, ammunition, all kinds of merchandise shipped to Brownsville and then transshipped to the other regions in the Confederate States of America. Because keep in mind that the Union Navy had blockaded almost all of the ports of the so-called Confederate States of America. So it was French-backed Mexico that had kept the Confederacy afloat by dint of its dealings with Texas, but that apple cart was upended when you had the arrival on the border of these black troops, although uh, I would be remiss if I failed to acknowledge part of the downside of the story, which is that post-1865, in one of the more shameful episodes, I'm afraid to say, in black history in the United States, these black troops, re-Christian as so-called Buffalo soldiers, acted as a hammer against the indigenous population along the border, particularly the people we refer to as the Kickapoo, who had been expelled from the United States and wound up in northern Mexico. These troops acted as a hammer against the population of Mexican origin, led by Juan Cortina, a hero in Mexican history who had not been reconciled, like so many in Mexico, to the fact that the United States had engaged in this massive land grab, not only seizing Texas, but in the War of 1846 to 1848, seizing California, Arizona, New Mexico, and other territories too numerous to mention. And the Buffalo Soldiers, of course, were a hammer against that kind of resistance. And indeed, they were a hammer until Ultimately, they were cast aside like a kind of soiled tissue circa August 1917 when you had black soldiers who had been sent from the northern reaches in the United States to southeast Texas, who then were supposed to be deployed against Pancho Villa and other Mexican revolutionaries during the revolutionary decade in Mexico, 1910 to 1920. But alas, many of these black troops were unaccustomed to the unique and rigorous Jim Crow that obtained in Houston in particular. The trigger for a mutiny by these soldiers took place when some of these soldiers saw a black woman being manhandled and roughhoused by the still violent and corrupt Houston Police Department. They went on a rampage shooting up the town, leading to a mass court-martial, one of the largest court-martials in the history of the United States, leading to one of the largest mass executions in the history of the United States of America. 
And what happens after that is that you see a reluctance on the part of the U.S. authorities to continue to put arms in the hands of black soldiers. And so for the longest, after black soldiers were recruited, oftentimes reluctantly to the ranks of the U.S. military, they were consigned to driving trucks, peeling potatoes, preparing food, being typists. And uh, that is the unfortunate bookend of what unfolds in Southeast Texas in June, 1865. Dr. Horn, we're talking about anniversaries and holidays and how they're remembered and how they help form consciousness. Karl Marx, of course, famously said that the ideas of any society are the ideas of its ruling class, which makes perfect sense since the ruling class dominates not only the economy, but religious institutions, educational institutions, cultural domains, you name it, anything that shapes and forms ideas. And those ideas by a a minority, small minority ruling class have to be done with precision so that the masses of people are perhaps by consent going along with their own oppression or certainly going along with the dictates of the ruling class. And that's why it's important for us to actually deal with the the real history. And as you point out here in the Civil War, that this was perhaps the high point of the class struggle in the United States. When I was a kid, not only did we not know any of this, I grew up in Western New York, Rochester, New York, but instead we went to movie theaters, I can remember as a young kid, and we watched movies like the blockbuster, The Alamo, where we were all taught to love Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie and root for the underdogs at the Alamo. And this entire part of history where a vast part, perhaps half of Mexico, ends up being eventually taken from Mexico and used for the still developing ruling class, the capitalist establishment in the United States. Anyway, we worshipped the slavers. I mean, that's how these movies were depicted. And you would never know from watching them that these people were oppressors and people who wanted to take Texas to expand slavery. It was unexplained, but again, so important in terms of shaping of consciousness. I say this because your own books, and you've written so many, and we always encourage our listeners to get your books because they represent the actual factual history of the United States, which completely cuts against this narrative. Well, you're correct. And I'm happy to say that my work has been joined by other work, interestingly enough, mostly by Black writers and creators. I'm thinking of the Black filmmaker Raul Peck, his four-part documentary series, Exterminate All the Brutes, a sweeping analysis come castigation of settler colonialism in North America. In particular, that term settler colonialism is conspicuously absent from the vocabularies of all too many in this country. Recall that his other credits include uh, the young Karl Marx and I Am Not Your Negro, an award-winning documentary about the writer James Baldwin. And then there's the new book, by Tyler Stovall, a former University of California scholar, White Freedom, which I'm happy to say draws in part on my work to paint a devastating portrait of what's been 
extravagantly called the Enlightenment, and not to mention 1776, which he portrays as, quote, white freedom, unquote, which is why it's been so difficult to extend freedom to the rest of us, as recently exemplified by the United Nations report just issued under the administration of Human Rights Council leader Michelle Bachelet, the former president of Chile, which roasts and denounces the mistreatment of black people, particularly with regard to police killings, and calls, in some sense, for reparations. And then there is the play by the paramount black intellectual Ishmael Reed, which is a send-up of the Disney Broadway extravaganza Hamilton, which of course portrays the so-called founding fathers in gauzy and romanticized tones. Ishmael Reed presents the other story portraying Alexander Hamilton the way he actually was, which is marrying into a major slave-owning family. And then there's the controversial 1619 project of the New York Times, which for various reasons has received the most attention and in fact has been denounced, uh, I'm afraid to say, to a certain extent, these other works, including mine, by a, what could only be called a kind of white united front involving so-called socialists, uh, liberals, conservatives. Recall that Donald Trump issued in the fall of 2020, the so-called 1776 report as a counterpoint to the 1619 project. And we already know about these demagogic attacks on so-called critical race theory, which most of these legislators would not know if it smacked them in the face, some of these legislative measures will include the fining of teachers who are thought to teach so-called critical race theory. In other words, you could be fined if you teach the accurate history of Juneteenth, the way I've just recounted it, for example, or if you teach my book, the Counter-Revolution of 1776, which portrays the revolt against London led by slaveholders, as interestingly enough, has something to do with slavery, as opposed to all of these amorphous notions like liberty, freedom, and all the rest. And uh, as a consequence, I'm not happy to say, that a number of forces have defected not to say that they were on the right side of history in any case. I'm speaking of the prize-winning biographer, Frederick Douglass, speaking of David Blight, who has compared the 1619 Project invidiously to Donald Trump's efforts, not to mention another Ivy League historian, Matthew Karp, who in the current issue of Harper's Magazine does the same thing, despite the fact that he wrote a decent book about slavery and how, in a sense, you can infer from his text that the seeds of U.S. imperialism were implanted in the slave-owning class as they continued to try to seize land and territory with Mexico and the grabbing of Texas being Exhibit A. So this is part of this struggle around the meaning of the United States of America. And what's curious is that many of these historians throw up a great wall between the past and the present. That was part of the objection to Nicole Hannah-Jones project. She was trying to say that many of the problems we have today in the black community have historical roots. Whereas many of these liberal historians, not to mention conservative historians, they 
try to portray the United States as being this grand experiment inaugurated in the late 18th century, they don't necessarily see a connection between what's happening today. It's as if you go to a doctor and the doctor takes a medical history and you recount what has befallen your great-grandparents, your grandparents, your parents, and then you wait for the diagnosis of your own condition and the doctor says, well, no, I'm just interested in history for history's sakes. Uh, I have nothing to say about your current condition. Well, that's the sort of lunacy that some of our so-called leading scholars are now embroiled in. And right now, of course, it's led to not only these laws against so-called critical race theory, but a very distorted discourse in the mainstream U.S. press in particular. And it's something that I think we're all going to have to pay careful and close attention to. Indeed. And when you think about it, last year during the uprising against racism, I mean, 35 million people participated, according to the surveys, maybe half of them for the first time had joined a protest. So something really different, something that really profoundly impacted the country. And the police were called out. Trump wanted to, of course, invoke the Insurrection Act to have full court, full spectrum dominance over the battle space, which Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, declared were actually the urban areas of the United States. This whole uprising against racism, and people started to target all of these Confederate monuments. Many of them are very, very far away from the Confederate states of the South, all over the country. This love of the Confederacy, it appears that the Confederacy lost the war militarily, but not politically. And so people demanded that these statues be taken down and these monuments. And then the right wing would say, well, no, you can't take down the statues because that's erasing history. And now these same people are saying, if you teach the history, you're going to go to jail. If you teach critical race theory, as it's called, which is just a broad brush label, but if you teach the facts about the Confederates who were put on pedestals in these monuments all around the country, you can't talk about the history. So if you take down the monuments, you're erasing history. If you talk about the history, the actual history, then you're in trouble. Well, what's interesting, as you suggested, is that in Nevada, far distant from the main battlefields of the U.S. Civil War, the flagship university, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, their athletic teams were called the Rebels in honor of the so-called Confederate States of America, featuring an icon that resembled a Confederate soldier for the longest. In Utah, once again, far distant from the main battlefields of the Confederate States of America, until maybe a week or two ago, a major university in that state carried the name Dixie. And so you wonder why are these folks in Nevada and Utah feeling compelled to honor traitors of the Confederate States of America, so-called, who sought to overthrow the United States government in order to perpetuate enslavement of Africans forevermore. And I think that your listeners can readily infer something that I suggested in the book I just mentioned of mine, that is to say that many in Dixie, in the South, but not only in the South, felt that in 1861, 
Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, etc., were standing on the shoulders of other slave owners, such as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. And it's only certain quirks and twists of history that led to their being defeated. And one of the lessons you can readily take away from this chain of events is that when you lose, oftentimes the verdict of history is much more harsh than if you prevail. Compare 1776 to 1861, for example. And as I mentioned in my book on 1776, when Ian Smith of the so-called Rhodesian Front in the nation now known as Zimbabwe seceded from the British Empire in 1965, he suggested that he was walking in the footsteps of George Washington at all. And he had a point in the sense that London was moving towards abolition for reasons that need not detain us here, but which are detailed at length in my book. And London also was tired of expending blood and treasure fighting Native Americans moving across the continent and then turning the proceeds over to real estate speculators like George Washington. And rather than accede to these London decisions, as reflected, by the way, in Somerset's case, June 1772, where London seemed to suggest that slavery would be abolished not only in England, but the inference was drawn that that could easily leapfrog the Atlantic, jeopardizing fortunes in North America. And so Ian Smith was seeking to circumvent one person, one vote leading to African majority rule, which ultimately prevailed in what is now Zimbabwe. And rather than accede to that logic, he too rebelled. So he had a point. And with regard to these statues, I recall when I was a faculty member at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the spring of 2003 and in 2004, I wrote a letter to the campus newspaper wondering why it was that people in North Carolina seemed to be celebrating the toppling of statues to Saddam Hussein in Iraq at the hands of the U.S. invaders when we were repeatedly told that you could not topple statues such as on the campus or once existed on the t campus of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill before student action toppled it willy-nilly, but we could not do such in 2003, 2004, because that would be vandalism against history. And I wondered why people in North Carolina were not objecting to the toppling of statues of Saddam Hussein. Of course, that exposed their hypocrisy, opening me up to invective and worse. But it's that kind of hypocrisy that is the lubricant that keeps the engine of U.S. capitalism and U.S. imperialism operative. But I'm afraid to say that since so many are pointing the finger of accusation and saying forthrightly, I accuse in the face of these lies of U.S. imperialism, that the date is not far distant when this engine running on the lubricant of hypocrisy and lies will seize up like a car engine without oil. Yeah, it's very interesting, Dr. Horn, and I agree with you that the political climate, if you look at the past, say, 30 years, there was, you know, the 500th anniversary of Columbus, the 1492 to 1992. I mean, at that time, really a minority part of the public was 
demanding a rethinking of Columbus, insisting that the truth be told about Columbus, and that instead of the United States putting Columbus on a pedestal, et cetera, et cetera, that the truth be told about the history of genocide and the history of the enslavement of whole peoples from Africa, but also from Latin America, who were forced to work as slaves in the minds of European colonialists, that this was the dawning of what we now call modern capitalism, which Marx, again, in the book Capital, describes as a system that came into the world dripping with blood from every pore. That was a very loud voice, but sort of a distant voice, a marginalized voice in 1992. Today, as a consequence of your work, as a consequence of social and political movements demanding change, as a consequence of the you know sort of combination of different social and political movements coming together, the dominant narrative, which was so dominant, is starting to come undone. Of course, the ruling classes are trying to adapt, as you can see with Juneteenth, which I agree with you, very, very important that it becomes a federal holiday so that the real story can be told. But it's part of the effort to adapt in order to avoid the final sort of denouement, as you're describing it, for this existing system. Anyway, I think there's a lot of progress that's been made, and it's really a consequence of people pushing from below, coupled with, supported by scholars such as yourself and others whose works are really widely sought after now, which may not have been true, maybe it was, but not as sought after, say, 30 or 40 years ago. Well, that's true. And I'm glad you mentioned the point about how the ruling class is seeking to adapt. Excuse this arcane reference, but for pro football fans in your audience, you might recall the Dallas Cowboys football team and their so-called doomsday defense, which the analysis would say, it may bend, but it does not break. And I think that that's what the U.S. ruling class is trying to do. It's trying to bend without breaking. It's trying to adapt without necessarily conceding the major political points, such as <laughs> control of commanding heights of the economy, radical redistribution of the wealth from top to bottom, as opposed to bottom to top, which is the usual mode of operation, working class control, empowering of the nationally oppressed black people and indigenous people in the first instance. And so rather frantically, they're trying to absorb this mass energy and redirect this mass energy. And of course, we should accept whatever concessions we are able to wring from this society such as another paid holiday, which in a sense is a micro example of redistribution of the wealth, while asking for more, which is really what the ruling class does when we make concessions. Rather than being satisfied, they say, thank you very much. What else you got? And that's what we should say to the ruling class when we force concessions from them. Thank you very much. Now, what else you got? Until we're able to accomplish those aforementioned objectives which I'm happy to say may be on the horizon. Gerald, we're recording this show on Monday, June 28th, but 
our listeners will hear it on July 1st. And July 1st, of course, is going to be a very widely celebrated event in the People's Republic of China because it's the formation, the founding of China's Communist Party. Now, when you think about China and you think about the development of a Communist Party in you know, 1921, it comes to mind that this came about after the Russian Revolution. And Lenin and the Bolsheviks, unlike the imperialist countries who sometimes, including Woodrow Wilson, postured about the right of self-determination of nations, the communists who took power in Russia in 1917, they actually meant it. And young activists in China, in Korea, in Vietnam, in Indonesia, throughout the Middle East, certainly in Africa, in Latin America, when they saw this new government proclaiming that it was for the complete national liberation of the colonized and semi-colonized peoples of the world, it directed their activism in the direction of Marxism. And it had a profound impact on Marxism. As Lenin said after the Russian Revolution, the center of revolutionary gravity was moving east, meaning away from Europe, where Marx and Engels, of course, had been active as Germans who were then living in exile in London. It was moving east, and the center of revolutionary gravity was moving east. And as a consequence, communism was moving east. And by east, we also could mean south meaning away from the dominant parts of the capitalist slash imperialist world. This is a monumental development for China because until then, China, even after the 1911 revolution, had been disunited by warlordism, dominated still by Europeans and other imperial powers, later you know, super oppressed and after the invasion by Japan. After the Chinese Communist Party came to power in 1949, and interestingly, Mao Zedong said at Tiananmen Square when he made his speech, the Chinese people have stood up. He didn't say, we're now communists, or he said, we have stood up, meaning we are taking our country back. We are uniting our country. But when you think about the last hundred years, it certainly has changed world politics in very, very profound ways. Well, that is correct. And as we speak, I think it's important to say that the Chinese Communist Party, with a membership of 90 to 100 million, is certainly the largest political entity on planet Earth, perhaps as a result of the numbers, the most potent. By way of comparison, its membership is larger than the population of the Federal Republic of Germany, about 82 million, to cite one example amongst many. And I think it's also important to say that as we speak, the Chinese Communist Party is leading the People's Republic of China on a glide path that sooner rather than later, perhaps already, will eventuate in China becoming the leading economy on planet Earth. An emblem of that ascendancy was marked just a few days ago when China launched a space station, that is to say, with regard to China's strength and potency, you need look no further than the stars in outer space and China helping to land vehicles on what's colloquially called the dark side of the moon. 
keep in mind as well <laughs> that uh, China also has attracted considerable investment from the imperialist camp, and we'll get into that shortly. But what's remarkable about that is that it is more likely that there will be Communist Party cells in Disney and Microsoft and Starbucks enterprises in China more so than on their counterparts on the East Bank of the Pacific. Speaking of these gigantic U.S. corporations, that's quite a feat. And therein lies another story, because in my years on planet Earth, I've had a rather unique and perhaps even personal relationship to China. When I went to teach at the University of Hong Kong over 20 years ago, one of the reasons I did so was that I was seeking answers. I was seeking answers because in previous decades, I had been involved in fierce arguments with friends and co-workers about the political trajectory of China, particularly in the wake of the Nixon-Kissinger overture of 1971-1972, which led to an anti-Soviet entente, which then led to massive foreign direct investment in China, which I mentioned a moment ago, which has now created this juggernaut. And as I noted in my book on Southern Africa, by the mid-1970s, when Angola was soaring to independence, it found China in a curious alliance with U.S. imperialism and apartheid South Africa against the eventual winning party, the popular movement for the liberation of Africa. And I recall having these arguments and debates about why this was taking place and people didn't believe what their eyes should have told them because it didn't comport with their theory. Their theory of the case was that China was the true revolutionary power. It was not conspiring with U.S. imperialism, despite the facts on the ground. And personally, that helped to change my life and career, because until that point, I was kind of an activist lawyer. But I have to say, I soured on the meat and milk or tofu and soy milk of lawyers, which was argument, because I could see that having facts on your side and a powerful story did not necessarily prevail. And that's actually what drove me into writing history books to try to take a deep dive into the past to try to provide some explanation of the present, which then led me eventually to Hong Kong, where I would try to talk to the comrades about what was going on and what led to that. In fact, it was not only the anti-Soviet intent, recall, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, there was the Japanic, that is to say, the United States was hysterical about the rise of Japan. Go back and look at some of the movies, Rising Sun with Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes, or Iron Maze, M-A-Z-E, with Bridget Fonda. Real hysteria about the rise of Japan. And of course, China proved quite timely in terms of ganging up with U.S. imperialism on Japan. I'll never forget the attacks on the Japanese enterprises in China and the sort of demonizing of Japanese people, which was curious because if you look at the history of the triumph of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, particularly in the important interregnum between the defeat of Japan in 1945 up to the triumph of the Chinese Communist Party in October 1949, you had considerable cadre 
from the Japanese Communist Party and from the Japanese left in general that joined with the Chinese Communist Party to fight so that they could triumph. And so this demonizing of Japanese people across the board, I found very unsettling. But alas, history has a strange way of making twists and turns. You mentioned my book on the 16th century, and one of the reasons we're sitting here speaking English is that the dismal archipelago, speaking of the nation we came to know as Great Britain, in the 1500s was a minor power, but it cut a deal against its fellow Christians, speaking of Catholic Spain in the midst of religious conflict, it cut a deal with the Muslim powers, speaking of Ottoman Turkey, and that was enough to help to weaken Catholic Spain, as I go into in some detail, which has now led to us sitting in North America speaking English. So it's rather ironic that in a sense, you've had a replay, this time involving communists and socialists in the 20th and 21st century. And what's even more striking and remarkable is that this spectacular misjudgment on the part of the US ruling class and its acolytes in think tanks and universities, Yale University, they have a whole program in grand strategy, which supposedly is meant to obviate this kind of turn of events. They have little or nothing to say about how China got into the passing lane, which is one more reason why they have forfeited their right to rule and sooner rather than later will be ousted from power. One of the really important, and since we're speaking of the ironies of history, the contradictory, the outcomes that couldn't be or weren't anticipated by ruling classes when they made short-term calculations, which ended up having very, very huge long-term consequences, one of the things that jumped out, and I too was active and part of those some of those same debates that you're talking about in the early 70s and then the late 70s. And of course, it was extremely distressing that China sort of switched sides in the struggle against imperialism in Angola, in parts of Southern Africa. In Cuba, Fidel made a speech at the Non-Aligned Conference in 1980, where he makes mention of the fact that certain powers, and he then specifically refers to China, were trying to have the Non-Aligned conference be moved somewhere other than Cuba, because Cuba was an ally of the Soviet Union. And then we have a situation where China's integrated into the world economy. It's going great guns in the 1980s at the same moment that the Soviet Union and its leadership are facing, well, old age in a literal sense for the leaders, but also economic stagnation, not negative growth, but a slowing of growth while China's on this exponential rise, rapid rise, because of foreign direct investment. And you could see parts of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union and parts of the Soviet establishment writ large, and certainly elements within the communist leaderships in Eastern Europe were thinking, well, look, why can't we be like China? Why don't we sort of call off the confrontation with the United States? In the case of the Soviets' attitude towards Eastern Europe, I think Gorbachev adopted the position, let Hungary go back to the West, let you know Czechoslovakia go to the West, let East Germany be swallowed up by West Germany, and then we will, like China, be integrated into the world economy. A monumental miscalculation. And then as a consequence of this demoralization inside the Soviet leadership, partly as a consequence of China being integrated by the imperialists into the world capitalist economy with all of the attendant benefits, 
the Soviets collapse and the U.S. feels like it's the dominant unipolar power and it's going to you know, invade Iraq and invade Syria and destroy the resistance in Lebanon and all of these grand schemes which bog imperialism down in Middle East wars while China peacefully rises. I mean, when you think about the irony of this whole process of the past 40 to 50 years, it's so obvious and so palpable. And yet, as you mentioned, unrecognized by the think tanks, they just suddenly, China's a problem. Suddenly, we have to orient towards major power conflict and beat them down without any sort of real examination of what's happened. <laughs> Excuse me for laughing, because it's really not funny. But that's almost mind-boggling. It's like a drunk in a bar, stumbling from fight to fight. You see these imperialists and their acolytes, without thinking about how they got into this pickle, now want to pick another fight. That's the import of Biden's trip to Western Europe in recent days. That is to say, trying to sign up the European Union and not to mention NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, as President Macron said, he didn't see necessarily China being part of the North Atlantic uh, in terms of the original charter. And I too recall Fidel Castro's speech at the Non-Align, which also reminds me that like the Cubans, to a certain extent, I've been now accused of being in the tank for China <laughs> because I won't join this crusade, this latest new Cold War, against China, even though if U.S. imperialism, and of course it was impossible, had followed my advice, they might not have been in the pickle they now find themselves having to launch this new Cold War. And then with regard to China itself, I understand that China and the leadership have been busily studying the example of the former Soviet Union, trying to understand how they can avoid the pitfalls that led to the demise of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And there are many reasons for the latter, but uh, I would urge the comrades to look in their own files and be thankful that it appears as of now that post-Communist Party Moscow, despite inducements offered by Mr. Biden at the summit in Geneva, that post-Communist Party Moscow apparently will not play a diabolical role against Beijing. Certainly that's the import of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which brings under one roof not only China and Russia, but also allied forces such as Iran and India as well. And that's very important, the latter, since India is now being wooed to join this anti-China alliance uh, spearheaded by the United States of America. But understandably, we ridicule the short-sightedness of these eggheads in Washington, New York, and elsewhere, such as Cambridge, Massachusetts, who were not able to foresee what it seems to me was foreseeable and made these short-term calculations. Was well, not just in the United States. I mean, Look at these Western European nations, how they acceded to the reunification of Germany, the liquidation of the German Democratic Republic or Socialist Germany, even though if you go to London today, what you'll find is that the anti-Berlin sentiment is palpable. 
which is understandable since Germany helped to bring down London a peg or three, beginning with World War One and then reaching a kind of zenith during World War II where British people were hiding in subways as bombs were raining down on London, shot from by Germans, and yet they acceded to the strengthening of Germany. France did the same thing, even though it was occupied by Germany during a good deal of World War II. And so this short-sightedness, not only the U.S. ruling class, but these ruling classes as general is just, it's just astonishing. Which then brings me to an article that appeared in the New York Times, summing up some academic research, once again, by some of these harebrained, bonehead scholars that too often occupy the higher reaches of the academy. And they were saying, hmm, one of the reasons why socialism collapsed in Eastern Europe and in Russia points eastward, but not in China, the Korean Peninsula, Vietnam, Cuba, etc., was because you really didn't have revolutions in the former, which will come as a surprise to those of us who are familiar with the Bolshevik Revolution, but that's another story for another day. But what they neglected to mention was what you suggested, which is that inducements were offered to many of these European socialist regimes, uh, which thought that they could enter Shangri-La by joining the European Union. And uh, this obviously is a spinoff of this long-time, long-term story of what I call the Whiteness Project, which I explore the seeds of in my 16th century book. And obviously, the inducements of the whiteness project were not as attractive or not necessarily even available to these socialist regimes that managed to survive. So we see that the beat goes on. The ruling class continues to bumble from one catastrophe to another with their comical sidekicks in the universities and the think tanks bumbling along after them. Dr. Gerald Horn was our guest. He holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of many, many books. His most recent book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's the author of The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. Be sure to give that book as a present to a family member on July 4th. Dr. Horn is also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. You're listening to The Socialist Program. If you support this kind of programming, go to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program become a patron become a subscriber we will be back on tuesday you've been listening to the socialist program with brian becker where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it if you enjoyed the show subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on facebook twitter and instagram We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.